Is this Frank? Oh, yes. Hi, Christian. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Excellent. Hey, Frank. It's Joe. Oh, hey, Joe. Sorry, I didn't hear you at first, but now I think I, I think I now do. We've been wanting to have you on for a long time, Frank, because, uh, I mean, first, the Black Box Society book is something we've wanted to talk about. The issue with robotics, with algorithms, with um, basically human responsibility for things which are out of any human's control because of... <laughs> human-made uh, human objects that make it so. Um, and uh, But then Joe saw this concurring opinions... Um, Posted he, yesterday. Yeah, blog post he put up about the, the guy who shot a drone out of the sky. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, and which is, you know... Which we, is we, becoming an increasing problem, apparently. I mean, this is not the first story of this type. Yeah. Right. It, did you want to... I mean, I, we've talked to Ryan Kahlo before uh, about robotics, and, and one of the first distinctions that pops up are things which are robots and things that are not by the way by the way i gotta maybe drop a marker here have you listened to the new podcast with uh john syracuse and jason snell robot or not no have not heard about that oh yeah sounds yeah. fun yeah, yeah. It, it basically two two or three minutes at a shot and stuff like you know star trek enterprise robot or not siri <laughs> kit from knight rider robot or not and they and it's like two or three minutes of uh, of discussing whether or not it is a robot it's just that it's not question. A robot. well that is one of the threshold issues here too um is you know what is a robot and to what extent should law if it's regulating uh in this area uh do so well that, that distinction of whether something is a robot or it's something else may may make a huge difference and and this issue of shooting a drone out of the sky maybe even the word drone is ambiguous it, it, this is we're not talking about a robot here though are we frank well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I I do realize that Ryan's done great work and others have done great work in trying to distinguish, you know, exactly. Because people say, oh, the robots are taking our jobs. But do they mean the robot? Do they mean a software program? Like what Mark Andreessen talks about when he says software is eating the world, etc. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, if you wanted to have a strict distinction between something that's automated or remote controlled or in some way autonomous on its uh, it has its own autonomy yeah maybe we'd want to push the robotic characterization more toward that autonomy end of the spectrum um but yeah yeah but i even as a remote controlled object i think it's a pretty interesting case study yeah and, and i don't mean to push too much on labels i mean you know what you call it isn't as important i mean that's never been my emphasis in my own work is to care much about the label that you give it but kind of the functional differences matter like so this drone if it's as i imagine maybe it's one of these drj phantom drones probably which are really popular which take these awesome videos i think we linked that up in the ryan kalo show oh i don't remember uh, that. yeah they're fantastic you know they're, they're amazing i mean you get these hollywood style aerial shots from these drones which cost about a thousand dollars with right. the camera and everything um you can get them on amazon right uh, but, but you're sitting there as in the old days with a little kind of joystick type thing. Sure. Controlling where this thing goes and controlling the camera. It does. Now, these do have a function where they'll like return to home if they come out of contact. So it will there is some unmanned, uncontrolled hmm. flight that these can do. But it's very simple. It's not like go take pictures of something interesting. It's like if you lose contact, come back to the house or come back to where we uh, where we launched from. But so in a way, like. If I'm controlling it and getting it high enough so that I'm in some kind of airspace and, and, and then go over my neighbor's lawn and take pictures, if that's not all that different than just building a huge ladder on my property and going up high enough where I can take pictures of my neighbor's lawn, right? I mean, that's – so this is like the first cut, I say, of whether this is really a, 
is it a robotics thing? Is it a technology thing? Or is this issue? And maybe we haven't even set the case up well enough and we should let Frank do that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, so what, what kind of case is this? Is this, is this a tech problem, Frank? Sure, sure. You know, and that's a, it is interesting to sort of, you know, immediately frame it in the law of the horse type of situation. You know, So I'll go back to the, to the case study itself, which is apparently in Kentucky, there was a drone and there's some dispute as to the facts. The person whose property it was flying over, who shot it down, he says that essentially the drone got over his property, his daughter was in the pool, it was uh, hovering over the property, and he was freaked out by it and just shot it down. The people who own the drone now apparently are going on Fox News and other outlets and saying that, no, this $1,800 drone had a flight path that doesn't match uh, what we're being accused of. Um, And long story short, um, they came, they confronted the guy who shot down their drone he said, if you come any closer to me, I'll shoot you, you know, or there could be a shooting here. Um, and then they went to the police and the police actually put the shooter in jail. So that was what I thought was really interesting about this, you know, in contrast to like folks like Michael Frumkin who say violent self-control ought to be some type of right here. Um, the police there said, wait a second, no, this is like criminal mischief. And it's going to, I think, raise really interesting questions for Uh, particularly folks on, say, the more libertarian conservative side of the political spectrum, because, you know, I think many of them really believe strongly in a right of self-defense. You know, you have like Eugene Volokh's piece, uh, Right to Medical Self-Defense, and all the Second Amendment advocacy. But then others are are just as enthusiastic about the right of the drones to sort of fly everywhere and you know, so <laughs> you've got right. a real conflict there. Well, it, it's one, it's, you know, it, it's a new kind of case study that that shows how just talking about a right of property doesn't specify, you know, what your priors would be in any particular case, because there are lots of rights of various kinds of properties which are intersecting here. Right. And in fact, you know, I teach property, and and the case I start with is um, uh, one that I was uh, turned on to from uh, Henry Smith in his, his book, uh, the Jacques case. Fantastic case. Are you That's dragging, with this one? Uh, dragging the mobile home across uh, yeah. someone's snow covered. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great case to start with. So, yeah, they, so it, everything's covered with snow. They drag a mobile home across a field. This is the mobile home company. But after field, being refused permission to a, do so, after explicitly being refused permission by the landowner to right. cross the field, no damage whatsoever would occur from this thing, right? I mean, it, because it's over snow, and, 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 and in fact, they looked at it afterwards. There was no damage, yeah. right? The question, no damage in the sense of a compensable injury to the actual property itself. It didn't make a divot, didn't right. knock over a tree. Right. Um, it's just them dragging across your land when you said, no, don't do that. Right. And the, the court was concerned with whether you could, you know, d- so all they could get were, were um, nominal, uh, damages. nominal damages. But and could the they also is, get Could you damage. get punitive damages based on the fact that you were told not to come across our property and you did anyway? And so it kind of plums the depths of what it means to trespass and what kinds of interests right. that tort uh, protects. And, you know, one of the cases the court cited or, uh, was this kind of old hypothetical from one of the old cases where 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 the court said you know what if um uh what what if you're like a, you know like a creepy old man just kind of wanders on your property and looks in your windows but otherwise doesn't doesn't cause any injury <laughs> and, right, right. <laughs> and, and you know saying that that like there's an interest in just having your property be inviolable Right. Uh, um, well, I would describe that interest differently. I, uh, to me, it's it's an interest in n- not um, not being surprisingly surveilled. 
like there 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 are right. there are places and 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 situations where you feel as if you you don't need to worry about being observed right? right and if i take the trouble to put myself in such a situation ah i i bought a house that's this far away from the road and i'm sitting in the back of my house which doesn't face near anyone else's house right. and therefore i feel like i've done i'm just imagining this as hypothetical right. right therefore i think i've done what i need to do yeah to not be surprisingly surveilled right right Right. Um, and, uh, and if you turn around in your kitchen and there's a creepy old guy ogling you from your backyard, right. um, even if he's not, you know, smashing divots in your grass and causing you to have to go buy some new grass seed, uh, it's, that's still pretty weird and surprising. And that reason, right, that, that reason for protecting the interest was enough for the court to say there should be punitives to prevent people from basically turning the trespass doctrine into something optional if they're careful not to cause you right. know, physical damages. And then you look at a case like uh, I also teach this case Desnick, this Judge Posner decision, where uh, a, a, a company um, was it uh, twenty twenty or I don't know one of these um, I forget now which one oh, Sam Donaldson's yeah, news program secretly going in and taping secretly went in and taped like a, an ophthalmology clinic where they were basically suggesting unnecessary glaucoma surgeries or something right. like that or cataract surgeries and. Uh, you know, and there, Posner said, "Well, is this you know is is a restaurant critic who doesn't disclose that he or she is reviewing the food? Is that person a trespasser?" Uh, and he brings up the issue of prostitution. You know, if you pay a prostitute with a counterfeit bill, is that a battery? And he kind of goes through all of these different uh, um, cases in which permission is at issue, but for which permission is obtained by some fraud or something. And, and it, again, it's like trespass is about various interests that we're trying to protect, right? And it's almost like you know it when you see it. And so all this culminated in my property class with asking exactly the, almost exactly the fact pattern of this hypo or this real case uh, on an exam about two or three years ago, uh, where someone flies a drone over someone's property mm. under the guise of their interest in birds or something like that, but is t- actually taking pictures of the neighbor's yard and the okay. neighbor sues for trespass and nuisance analyze, right? Right. And uh, it looks, looks like this is coming to fruition now. And, and how do you, um, I don't know, I'll just kick it back over to you, Frank, to uh, tell us maybe the bottom line and then we can dig more into it. Uh, what, how did, how should this case have come out? Well, you know, I, I hesitate to comment on the case itself until I have a really, really good grasp of the facts, which are now in dispute, but well, let, let, let me, let me, let me immunize you. Let's, let's assume this is a hypothetical, <laughs> which is the facts of which are as described so far. And any resemblance to real cases is completely coincidental. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that this is, you know, one other piece of context I think is important here, which is, you know, there's this old Supreme Court case, I think from the 40s, where yeah. a farmer sued to stop a plane from flying over his land. Yeah, this is the um, Cosby case, C-A-U-S-B-Y. No, yeah, and then there's also like a Ninth Circuit case, Hinman, that I, I use both of those in my property class. This was like the third data stream that comes into this. Yeah, go ahead, Frank. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, so that was, and, and it's funny because I want to tie this into a little bit of like uh, tech permissionless innovation talk as well. Because you, Larry Lessig's book, I forget which book, but one of them opens with the story of the airline and the Supreme Court, I think, voting unanimously or something to say this is a ridiculous case. You know, even though we have this old property law doctrine of ad coelum, you know, you own everything up to the sky, that that has to. Um, retreat in the face of modern technological necessity, et cetera. Um, And that same idea, I think, is behind a lot of Google's success. So if you look at um, uh, Oren Braha's article, Turning Copyright Law on Its Head, 
you know, you couldn't really have Google. Well, you know, maybe you could. It's, it's an interesting question for debate. But imagine a world where Google had to go to every website individually and get express permission to copy the website to put it into its archive. What Google essentially did to circumvent that is they just said to website owners, look, put robots.txt as a tag, and you know, if you put that tag in, we won't copy you. And that was enough for the judges. But that is not, you know, under copyright law, really, the way things should happen. Uh, and so I think that this is a situation where um, my personal sense is that uh, if you have a sort of growing momentum of demand for drone-delivered products and the drones start you know, saving people's lives by delivering medicine or delivering remote health care or what have you, you're probably going to see this sort of upwelling of public support for um, types of either legislation or judicial decisions that effectively say, look, you know, there's all sorts of interests in stake here, but we're going to essentially uh, extend that earlier uh, restriction on the ad coelum uh, property right to, say, 200 feet, 300 feet above your property. However, you know, I could see it playing out in the other direction. And frankly, you know, I, I <laughs> but, but I, I think the, the bottom line of my post, though, was that I worry about either direction going too fast on sort of a common law logic. And I really hope that there's just a very concerted regulatory effort to impose um, air traffic control type of uh, coordination on these drones. Because part of what I worry about is I just feel like the, the a spontaneous order here could go in many bad directions, you know, and I, I particularly, you know, have been bothered by, by say, uh, drones in the park. Like there's a park that I really love. And, you know, I recently had the experience of just having the serenity of that park experience just shattered by these whining buzzing drones over the place and now i'm not saying i should win this this, this battle i'm not saying like oh drones should not be allowed in parks or they should be automatically segregated but what i am saying is that that is an issue for i think the public to get together and to decide you know on a locality by locality basis how saturated it wants its airspace to be with drones um how how much of a problem, say, their noise causes, et cetera, their other problems or externalities they could impose. And that's why I particularly like Marco Kaminsky's article, uh, drones and Civilian Drones and the Things They Carry, because she has very much endorses um, pluralism and loca localism in terms of drone regulation. And she pushes back against uh, the hope that I think a lot of industry have that there will be federal preemption of local laws there. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that's really different than the Henman or Cosby case, right, where the, the court is faced with this old uh, doctrine, the Ad Suellum doctrine, from the, basically from heaven to hell, if, you know, if you own the surface. Uh, <laughs> and if that, if that doctrine um, um, continues, then you give, you know, commercial air traffic across the United States is impossible because it's impossible basically to plan your route without creating a whole bunch of holdups, right? Um, yeah. Because you, you're going to have to get permission from every single piece of land that you might potentially overfly. And right? people who are uh, later in the list of people whose permission is sought now know they have a great deal of power to right. exert over the requesting party, which is why it's not merely the fact that you have the cost of getting all these permissions. It's that later given ones have an almost an extortionate power right. uh, relative to uh, this is why things like eminent domain exist so yeah. uh, uh you know it's a it's a recognized problem and one way to cut through it is simply say 
there are no veto rights here. Yeah, and that is which is what Cosby yeah, does. Essentially, that common law rule was kind of eminent domain over this old common law right, but, <laughs> right. but which went uncompensated. But I, I, I hear what, what you're saying, Frank, is that with the with drones, you, you don't need that, partly because the technology is different and you, and you can plan what you overfly, right? And, and so it's not as though you're going to hamstring the technology um, yeah, if you don't cut through a thicket of permissions. Well, I, not that I want to... Um, uh, preempt Frank, but uh, but I I feel like it's like there's a this is actually sort of a mixed case. It's not it's not as easy to plan as the fact that if you and I are adjacent neighbors, the things I'm doing in my backyard, I can understand the sense in which they might relate to things you're doing in your backyard, right? Um, it's not quite that easy, but it's not quite as hard as planning a transcontinental air flight either, right? It's somewhere in between those two. I don't know which one it's closer to. It's probably closer to our backyards being adjacent. But I, I can understand why you might think, eh, this is, this is a little, you don't necessarily, you could fly the thing across town. You could fly it over areas where you don't know whether it's privately owned or publicly owned. Um, you might not know the height at which it's traveling. You might not know if there are other people present. You might not have any reason to think other people are present. So you don't know that you're actually creeping somebody out because they feel like they might be surveilled. I just feel like it's got a lot, it's got a lot more complexity than just I'm in my backyard, you're next door in, in your backyard. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, and that's where I think that level of complexity really does. Um, and it, it reminds me actually of this uh, recent blog post I saw called 55 jobs for the future. And I think one of the really great jobs for the future would be, you know, being the type of air traffic controller or, or logistics expert or what have you, whatever the new specialty would be that would try to mediate between all of these competing claims because, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a tough one. It's really tough when you think about the, all the different things that, you know, these drones could be used for. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny. I asked on Facebook, so, you know, just friends, what would you do if there's a drone hovering outside your window? And it was hilarious to the range of, of, you know, some people said, Oh, I just closed the curtains, you know? And I, I'm like, well, this is it really beyond you to have to close the curtains, you know, if you're like in a relatively private space and, you look, for example, also at the way different countries have dealt with Google Street View. I think in, China, in Japan, they had to reshoot a lot because they're just people had an expectation of privacy, say, in their front yard. Whereas in other countries, it's just seen as, eh, you know, they, if you're front, whatever's on your front yard, you've put out to the public display. So I do hope that there's, and that again gets to this cultural particularism point. You know, I could see a, some areas becoming like the Houston of drones. You know, Houston has, I think, very little planning, maybe no zoning. Um, and there might be places that want to lure in as many as possible and say, hey, there's no rules and here's, here's a big subsidy to you, implicit subsidy, but you're having no rules. And there are other places that may be like, yeah, you know, we, we've gotten by without them for, and, and we can continue to. So I, I do think that there is a real good argument for that. And that, you know, the, the flexibility of flight paths and planning makes that type of localism possible. Well, that's right. And, and that, again, they don't have to cut through that permissions thicket for the industry to survive like the, maybe they would with transcontinental flights. But there are a whole bunch of like the, the multiplicity of applications is what makes it complicated. I mean, there's a difference between flying cameras, thing. which are controlled by the users, flying mm. cameras, which are autonomous, right. flying delivery vehicles, 
flying government surveillance vehicles, flying government rescue vehicles. No, there's already there's already, um, you know, Frank, in your in your uh, post of yesterday, which inspired this conversation, you 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 look at um, air traffic control as a regulatory approach. And my understanding is that that drones are already classified as aircraft um, to the degree that uh, they can be in the air 500 feet or more above the ground, right? So um, to that degree, they're already embraced by air traffic control regulatory, the federal air traffic control regulatory uh, framework, aren't they? You know, it's the FAA rules, et cetera. I mean, I I don't follow them super, super closely. So, I mean, I just was following, you know, the recent article that said, to the extent there are regulations above 400 feet, above 500 feet, whatever the, the aerial limit is, that they ought to be extended lower to sort of deal with the type of problems that, you know, that are going to inevitably arise. Right. Um, but right, right. I mean, clearly, yes, you get above a certain level of certain altitude, and yeah, everything has got to be watched very closely. So yeah. But, but you go under a certain altitude, and it's not clear that you are in... Right. Henman Cosby land anymore, right? Because yeah, if well, you're too low, then you're not really overflying. Yeah, you're and it's in worth being specific because, you know, the right. uh, uh, so the average two-story house is, what, 30 feet tall? Um, and uh, and the, the, the sort of federal interstate commerce, if you will, the, the sort of federal air level, my understanding is it's 500 feet or more above the ground. Uh, and so in between, you know, that's a fairly big space where mm-hmm. we're drones could be both perceptible to the person on the ground, right? If it's 495 feet in the air, you might not even perceive it, uh, as it, as it goes by, or even if it hovers and you might not hear it, you might not see it. Uh, if it's a hundred feet off the ground, you probably are going to hear it. If you're not me, um, my hearing's pretty bad. If you probably are going to see it, uh, if at least if it's, yeah, but see, this is the this is the whole complexity of it. Like, is the problem that's what that I'm saying? There's there's a, there's like, a big region of space right. where we don't yet have the the sort of the federal regulatory thing doesn't reach that layer of space. But but the federal regulatory layer is is chiefly concerned with air safety, right? Um, and and so and, we have a lot of purposes and, for wanting to deal and these, with these kind things. of these of course drones that are above 500 feet could influence air safety. Of course, right. of course, so, and, and and so too could you know once you have a lot of these, um, they could influence one another's safety, right? But mm-hmm. also they could be loud and they can come under kind of what we normally regulate with nuisance, right? Which is annoyance to people. Right? Uh, they could they yes. could uh, <laughs> violate privacy concerns, which we normally would use like a trespass type tort for, or invasion of privacy, or yep. public disclosure of private facts, or one of these. Tor- the point is that the legal system has all of these handles which are addressed at, uh, at kind of stereotypical kinds of harms as they've been committed in the past right. using ordinary tools, right. right? And these are these kinds of technologies might be transformative enough, depending on whether the dr- hovering drone is more like my tall ladder example or if it's something different, right. uh, that you might want to think about the tools differently in order to arrive at you know, a fine enough net, meaning you've got all these different kinds of harms and you've got different nets to catch them. But now this is like going in between them. You know what I mean? And I we want to get the good things, too. Like we want to get the benefits that drones provide. Right. To, such as they are. I don't actually have a good handle on what they are. Good, one is they're awesome. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's say Google, to be a little more concrete, yeah. let's say Google decides that in addition to, you know, um, a, a map view and a, and a um, 
a street view of ground level photography. Let's say Google wants to have a drone view because because now it's got like street view maps and satellite. Of view, course. Right. Yeah. And let's say they want a drone view. Uh, yes. Um, and that sounds like that could be actually quite useful for navigation, for finding your way around, for exploring whether you want to move to a new town. You might want to And if you, see and if more you look of at it. that the way the law normally does, you say, well, how different is this than this other thing that right. we've approved of in the context? And I'm going to go back to something that you said, Frank, about um, – uh, the way that various different cultures cultures will analyze this by looking at expectations of privacy. And that's mm. the usual ex- expectation of privacy is like the three-word talisman of right. privacy law, whether it's Fourth Amendment or or, uh, or, or local or state torts. Um, and part of the problem here, right, is that's, it's, that's a conservative doctrine which kind of looks around and say, well, what does everybody think should happen here? And then you get one of these disruptive technologies where people want to embrace a new model that doesn't fit within those existing expectations. I mean, certainly... Well, some people will and some people won't. Some people won't, but how do you contest that, right? Right. Uh, so, Frank, tell us what to do. <laughs> <laughs> What's the well, answer? You know, you know, I mean, I, I personally think in, in many of these fields, I loved your point about the diversity of uses and the huge space between, say, four or 500 feet and the 30-foot level of the home or something like that. And I think that you know, it's it reminds me a little bit of health information law, where I mean, in terms of the data that is used in the health system, the type of data matters, the type of consent that you got matters, the ultimate purpose of the use matters. All of these things matter, creating a pretty complicated patchwork of rules in terms of how any particular piece of health data is going to um, be used for, say, research, marketing, public health, quality improvement, et cetera. There's many other categories within HIPAA and, and high tech. I think a similar thing is going to happen with drones. And for example, I could see a blanket rule, and this is a rule maybe I would even be in favor of a preemptive rule here, which would say, you know, if there's a someone needs drugs or life-saving medical treatment, the drone gets to fly to them, you know, no questions asked. And I think that's, uh, you know, I think that level of, of emergency care, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that, you know, when it comes to, say, ordinary package deliveries from Amazon of, you know, books or what have you from Amazon, then that is one where you're going to have to have, I think, the corporate interest in and the consumer interest in getting this stuff bow down to lots of other community interests um, and try to find, for example, the least disruptive flight paths. I mean, my personal pet peeve, and I know this is, it's funny because I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I think I have too good hearing. Like my hearing is kind of too sensitive. <laughs> mm. And so I, I really hate hearing these things. And so I, I would say that, you know, and I hope that like local communities will listen to people who are, um, you know, listen to a wide range of folks that have studied noise pollution and other things like that, and, and will incorporate those types of views into the the types of regulations they draw up, and you know, maybe create corridors over roads or, or over other uh, areas that we've gotten used to having loud logistics and transport vehicles over, um, or whatever the other externalities of these things could be. So I'm I'm hope I'm hopeful that you know you're going to see uh, a, a complex legal regime develop here. I just think that, you know, it's it's one of those areas where I was worried by the conversation, and this was all sparked actually by a conversation among people that are on the advisory board for the Electronic Privacy Information Center, um, because people seem to really want to solve this using common law principles or property law principles, and I was just, or contract or what have you, and I just sort of felt like, 
wow, this just, it seems as though we really need to have the, bring in the administrative state. Now, of course, that's my bias as an administrative law professor and someone that, you know, works in like heavily regulated fields like healthcare and, and tech and stuff. But it was just how I sort of felt, um, um, we need to have a, a more coordinated approach to this. Well, cause we got like a, we've got one technology or one type of technology, which can produce many different kinds of harms, you know, some, the, the, the noise that, Frank hears the privacy of the thing of the drone taking pictures into your window and uh, the the danger posed by having them drop out of the sky under your kid's head. I mean, they're all these they're really different. You look around at your existing tools. We've got like one tort for this. We got another tort for that. And, and 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 maybe the tendency is let me just reach into my toolkit and pull out a hammer and try to hammer this screw. Right. <laughs> and uh, but, but, it's, but the yeah. thing is, it's not really a screw. Right. It's both a screw. It's a nail and it's a staple. You know, it's like right. all of these. things. I think and, there might be Velcro in there, too. And so the administrative state, <laughs> I, I think that maybe this is like the modern thing that we reach for when we've got a complicated problem that we think needs to balance finally different kinds of interests. And the, the old tool for that, I think, frankly, was nuisance, right? Because right. nuisance is... It's so open textured. Exactly. I mean, it basically says, you know, judge, this is too complicated to figure out. You figure it out. Like you balance in this particular case. And right. which, which seems strange, especially when you look at people like Scalia in, in takings cases who, who are very formal, but say, oh, nuisance, of course, is background property law, right? It's it's stable. But of course, it's it's the most open textured... <laughs> right. Of the, of the, You've let the whole thing in now. Yeah, you, you, you thought you were power fencing to a judge out, yeah. to decide land use planning in yeah. a way, right? And and, um, and and maybe so maybe the attraction of the administrative state, and I don't uh, I don't know if this is the attraction for you, uh, Frank, is that it you know it it allows maybe um, um, a top down kind of not maybe that's the wrong word, but a technocratic approach to the problem of complexity without just throwing up our hands and putting everything in a judge's hands for an all things considered analysis using one or more existing legal tools. I think that's right. And I'll, I'll put in one caveat and one sort of a boost for the judges as well here, which is the caveat is, you know, I think we've already seen in some states some very troublingly opportunistic and captured regulatory maneuvers with drones. So, for example, trying to make sure that they cannot be used to highlight environmental harms from big agriculture or something. Right. I mean, if that's sort of and, and if that's where right. it all goes, if it's all going in that direction where, you know, very concentrated uh, interest groups come together and stop the drone from doing something that hurts them or that, you know, exposes them, I should say, not hurts, but exposes what they're doing. Yeah, then I'm really troubled. But I also hope that the judges are going to come in and say, look, there's the First Amendment and there's a First Amendment right of reporting with these things and, you know, that they're for public interest reporting. And that's where. This, I think there's a really vital line to be drawn between, say, a drone that flies over a confined animal feeding operation and finds, you know, massive uh, point or non-point sources of uh, fecal pollution, you know, going into everybody's water. Big difference between that and a drone flying up to a window and watching a person undress or something. Yeah. You know, there's not a public interest. And you saw that with this recent Gawker thing, right? I mean, this very salacious Gawker story, everyone universally said, that reporting on even a C-level executive's um, sex life uh, is not uh, something that they felt very much was in the public interest, you know, whereas like a lot of we still, the, the, you know, if that person were polluting or was leading a polluting corporation, I think we'd have a totally different intuition about um, investigative journalism there. You're pretty much echoing, I think, again, Posner in this Desnick case, this investigative reporting case who, you know, contrasted what happened in that case and the example of the food critic um, 
these things which are maybe it's built on our expectation, but maybe somehow affected with the public interest. And he gave another hypothetical of of a, a fake meter reader, someone who said that they were there to read the meter in your home or something like that to uh, to in order to charge you or to, for your service. But in fact, was just curious what was inside your home. Right. I mean, oh God. <laughs> right. I mean, you got that, that person obtained permission to come inside, but we, there's nothing that. But uh, under false pretenses. Exactly. Right. But, but so, too, uh, you know, understand. if you're trying to gain access to a confined animal feeding operation and right. you're a, a reporter. And, you, and that contrasts, though, with the with the restaurant critic who that's not really false pretenses. You don't you didn't promise you wouldn't comment to anyone else on the food. Right. So there's there's a there's a bit of a continuum here that uh, is pretty broad. There is, and it depends, you know, maybe you can make finer grain distinctions based on the actual representation the person made, right? Yeah. But, um, and, and you might have a tough case if the restaurant said no food critics, you know, mm, or something right. outside, right? But I think his analysis generally was the tort of trespass is there to protect certain kinds of interests, right? And one is the privacy thing that we talked about with the Jacques case and, 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 and in this case, you know, and in the peeking in your window case with the drone. Um, and maybe there are other things, the integrity of the property, the um, uh, meaning the physical integrity of the property. Right. Um, but on the other side, we have these public interests about access to private spaces. Yeah. And uh, including for reporting purposes. You yeah. Know, see our friend Sonia West's, you know, press exactly. clause understanding of a, a, a more robust right of, of the ability to access information, right. locations and sources. It just feels like the opportunities really to generate hard cases in this area in an era in which we are um, helicopters are really expensive and loud and we're basically restricted to our feet and our cars um, are rare in a world where drones are really cheap and you can fly them anywhere. It seems like this is going to be a much tougher issue and maybe fine grained analysis of the general public interest calculus of the trespass cause of action is right. not the right way to do it, which again goes back to Frank's point that maybe yeah. you know, we, we need a, a considered um, uh, administrative process that generates finer balances. Now, Frank, you mentioned administrative law approaches, and you also mentioned a concern about national preemption. One problem I see, in addition to the ones Christian was just pointing out, is there's sort of a jurisdictional uh, there's a jurisdictional level challenge here, right? Because this isn't, some of this stuff will be within a state, but some of it will be across state borders. That suggests a federal role. Um, but are, 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 are towns really adequately equipped to regulate in this area or to set up a town agency to deal with it? I mean, that doesn't sound practical. So, you know, what, um, what do you think the right level of government is here? <laughs> that is a great question. And I mean, I, I, you know, I think with the towns, I mean, you might, I'd have to study, this is an area that, you know, I, I would defer to someone like Nestor Davidson or a, a you know, local land use, a local government type of expert on. I'd have to look at, say, the current intergovernmental cooperation on things like transit uh, planning and other things like that. Mm. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, you, you do get some local input on things like transit planning. And I, mm. I would sort of assimilate this to a similar uh logic i want to say also the one thing about the the and yet another layer of complexity um is you know when we talk about those privacy um uh, issues there is a case i believe out of new york where a photographer was using this highly telescopic lens to take pictures of people inside their apartments while they were sleeping resting doing whatever and I think he was sued under some sort of private disclosure of public facts or public disclosure of private facts or some other uh, privacy tort. 
and won on First Amendment grounds. And I believe, although I'm not certain, I've got to you know review and brush up my sense of you know the conflicts between the administrative state and the First Amendment. But it seems to me that often, a if you let this just sort of be decided by courts, I think there'd be a lot of danger of those sorts of that maybe an out of control First Amendment even allowing, say, the voyeur drone to go up to everybody's window um, and to just be a fly on the window and, and watch whatever's going on. Whereas I think that the to the extent that it was assimilated into an air traffic control scheme or some sort of uh, other scheme, it's not as if people challenge a land use provision that says, oh, there has to be a setback or, oh, your your fence can be 15 feet high on First Amendment grounds. And so I'm <laughs> hoping that, you know, well, not yet. <laughs> you don't get... <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it wouldn't be the first time that the First Amendment is used as a Lochner style deregulatory device, right? <laughs> right. But, uh, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I have not, you know, I teach land use and I have not read a case where someone challenged a setback saying that this is dramatically decreasing my voyeur possibilities. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, you know, but you see some of these First Amendment articles and I mean, people are really pushing the envelope. I mean, people really do see it as this sort of all purpose, get out of regulation free thing. And, you know, I mean, I think there are, there's papers out there that say, oh, the CFTC, uh, Commodities Futures Trading Commission is unconstitutional because when I put a, a when I put money on, say, a certain future is going to go someplace that's like I'm speaking about it or I'm, you know, and it's, it's, it is something, you know, when you see that. But I, I tend to think that, you know, that in many of these areas, and there's also, even in the Sorrell decision, which is like a really expansive First Amendment decision about um, uh, drug marketing data, even there, uh, Justice Kennedy said, well, we, we don't need to mess with HIPAA at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I feel like there's a, there are ways of, I think that the, maybe that's a way in which the, um, the court feels more comfortable, the Supreme Court feels more comfortable slapping down the judicial um, incursions on free expression rights than administrative ones, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I, I have to look at this. but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, the court seems pretty darn comfortable slapping down anybody's incursions. <laughs> yes, uh, we, yes. No, you're right. It seems sensible yeah. to do so. So but. Let's, let's shift gears a little. And, and if we use the administrative model, I think we've still got questions about, okay, what is that administrative model going to do? So what is it, what is its, what is its, um, how is it going to focus its energy? So one thing I'm wondering is... So just, and, just to be clear, if we decide that this whole problem of drones, whether they have cameras or they're delivering or whatever else, we decide that trespass, nuisance, and, um, and traditional tools, public disclosure, private facts, that these are not the way we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna enact some preemptive uh, legislation and regulation that will do the job for us. So don't bring these suits. Let's use something else. And you're asking, like, what should that be, right? Right. And, and, and we can say, right. So we're not going to use common law causes of action as our regulatory tool. Instead, we're going to have a, the Drone Aeronautics Agency, or DAA, and mm-hmm. it's going to, and whether it's a federal or state body or maybe some hybrid, it's going to try to address uh, in, in, in using those tools uh, under a general statutory standard with regulatories promulgated pursuant to that standard. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, but, but it still seems to me, you still got to figure out what to do. And, and the analogies that have been running through my mind in much of this conversation, we all sort of come to things from, from our own direction is, uh, is the federal communications commission as someone who teaches telecommunications. So unlike Frank who teaches health law stuff, I do FCC stuff, therefore thinking, ah, well, okay. Um, the, the, regulatory bodies, uh, regulatory standards that have developed to prevent interference in the use of spectrum, 
Uh, that was one approach. But of course, that approach has come under pressure because some of this stuff can be uh, moved into smarter technology itself that can manage the problem. So smart radio, for example. Right. Should this agency focus on things like, here are the tech standards that drones need to possess so that, for example, they're constantly broadcasting their owner's identity if you have the right receiver to pick up that code. This is what um, Frank suggests in the blog post. Like, he does mention I assume this. like a transponder right. type. But you could also have, yeah, yeah. Um, you as an individual could have a, a beacon on your property that signaled to drones not to fly within oh, a certain distance of your property. A physical robots.txt device. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. or, or alternatively, um, or in addition to that, you could have technology where drones couldn't get within a certain distance of one another. This would prevent them from knocking into each other, right? So, um, and maybe that could also be combined with technology to prevent them from knocking into planes, uh, airplanes. So, I, I just feel like even if you say it's an agency, you don't yet know what the agency's main tasks will so, be. So, are you thinking of? Um, uh, and fr- Frank, just interrupt me because I'm sure you have something smarter to say than I do on this. But I was just going to ask. Uh, Are you imagining like a piece of legislation, kind of like an environmental, like the Clean Air Act or something, which mandates that the agency shall decide on like the best available control technology, right, to solve these problems? And then the agency says, okay, well, transponders are cheap enough. Uh, These uh, physical robots.txt implementations are are cheap enough. And so you have to do X, Y, and Z under the more general uh, legislative standard of you know, best available technology to avoid harms X, Y, and Z, which we still haven't really nailed down yet. But is, right. is that what you have in mind? Like a piece of legislation like that and then regulations which sift through existing technology to figure out what's going to be mandated? Yeah, I mean, I do think that there's going to be, and the environmental analogy is actually a really interesting one because there's also a lot of federalism there and there's a lot of uh, Very true. Know, broad frameworks established at the federal level. And then you have... Um, you know, local authorities, states and localities sort of figuring out um, exactly how to do the NIPTES permit or whatever the uh, relevant yeah. uh, implementation is. So, yeah, but I mean, to get to the substance, which I think that's a totally fair question, Joe, to say, well, what about the substance? I think the substance is going to be the first that comes to mind is the privacy concern about, you know, the drones hovering outside of people's windows. The second comes to mind is the uh, various environmental impacts ranging from noise to pollution to other forms of negative impacts uh, that would probably be you know, under nuisance under a more common law approach. Um, the third would be um, aspects of uh, safety. So, for example, you know, trying to make it so that they couldn't uh, just slice into somebody, even if, uh, if there's some sort of fail-safe technology that, just as you saw with like a there's actually a tech called the saw stop that, you know, actually prevents a saw from sawing into a human finger or, or thumb. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, and so if you have the saw stop, you know, if you have similar technology that would stop, like, what happened to um, Enrique Iglesias. I mean, no, this is a very bizarre story, but, like, he actually, like, grabbed, tried to, un- uh, unfortunately, grab a drone and it sort of cut him. And so, you know, it's like <laughs> during a concert. And I think, you know, you can p- p- imagine technology that would, you know, possibly uh, make it very hard for that to happen. I think also of like the types of things that are in cars now that keep you from backing over a toddler, you know, and there's so many tragic stories of people backing up their giant car, you know, a very large car and not necessarily seeing what was in, in their blind spot. And now I think there's technologies that just stop the car if that's about to happen. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, the, all of those things would be great national standards. And then the other job of the national regulator would be to ensure that the code in the drone 
can pick up on or otherwise implement local rules. So if the local rule is that the drone only flies over um, roads, then it has to pick that mm. up, you mm. know. Um, and so I think that those that type of cooperation, I think, would be quite, you know, and again, to, we see that in health information technology. We see broad governance standards developed by the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology in HHS, which then can be tailored for local implementation by health information exchanges or those who are, you know, running healthcare, health information infrastructures at the state level. So, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of think that that type of cooperation would be a really good, uh, good model there. And where you could have the federal regulator can set sort of, uh, it shall be at least this protective. And if states want to go even further and say, you know, as you, the example you just used, uh, Frank, it, the federal standard might say drones can fly in this area and a state could say, no, it's actually more confined than that. But a state couldn't say it was less confined than that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a really good good argument in a way to, and I think HIPAA works like that in almost all manifestations. HIPAA, uh, there are there's some people that say there's some tiny federal preemptive force to HIPAA, but overall, it is meant to set a, a floor and then states can add more. Yeah, like at the minimum, they you know it has to pass the Enrique Iglesias test, where you know every every, every drone you got to take it to him. He's got to reach out, and if it cuts him, it doesn't pass the test. Yeah. And if he's okay, then <laughs> it at least passes that much. Now, now uh, Frank, do you think so? Uh, to, let me go back to the robot or not question, um, and and ask: Do you think that on substance or in procedure for enforcement, anything would be different if the drones were? further out on the autonomy scale. So this is, you know, instead of like looking at a screen and I'm seeing what my drone is doing and I'm like, this is the old like remote control uh, truck scenario where I'm just driving it around. Instead, I just kind of program and uh, go to the store and pick this up for me or go to the park and take a picture of the lake or, and then it goes, right? Uh, it, d- does anything change? Um, it, I mean, I kind of think it does, but I, I, I don't know if you guys agree or if you think that the regulations and substance and inform would be the same, whether there's a human pilot or not. That is a really great question, and I mean, I think that the the problem becomes for me in many of the attributions of autonomy to other algorithmic systems. You know, to the extent that the things are being run via algorithm, that I often worry that that's a way of distributing or fragmenting responsibility to the point that no one is responsible. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I, and, and I mean, the, the, the idea of the machine itself being responsible, again, I'm not willing to contemplate that at present. I mean, if we move into a sort of Blade Runner future, maybe, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's a possibility. But again, you have to really worry about to what extent can, does anything of the old uh, law match up to a point where the, the deterrent effects of crime of jail and you know other uh, fines yeah. match up to what uh, a autonomous system could feel somehow you know or ha- its own instinct for self-preservation etc so i mean i i don't think that there i think that essentially the key to me is not necessarily to take autonomy itself as predicate for a different set of legal rules than it is to assure that some person is responsible for what the entity does some person some corporation yeah and i, I you know I, I don't remember if we i know we talked about these issues when ryan kalo was on the show uh, it was a great show and, and so much fun to chat with him but um so i don't remember if we talked about the analogy i feel like we did to manufacturing defects and the rise of strict liability 
in response to this problem of complexity, mm-hmm. right? And complexity of assigning blame, uh, where, you know, otherwise, unless you did something like that, cause would be stretched so thin as a concept that no one would ever be compensated and you wouldn't have the right incentives. And so I had in mind here that, um, that you know, if you're actually flying the vehicle, that maybe ordinary rules should apply. You know, you're charged with complying with the law on a, you know, and maybe there's a knowing standard or a negligent standard for complying with that. But but that if you fly an autonomous vehicle, that there should be um, strict liability, right? Um, and, and I don't know if that should be with the manufacturer or with you, um, but it's important to consolidate all of that complexity. Because I, I think what you're alluding to, and maybe I'm not, I, I'm sure I'm not going to say it as well, is that the the code which which dictates the behaviors of of this autonomous vehicle, the code in interaction with the environment around it, right? Which is what creates its complexity, which makes it impossible to predict what's going to happen, even if you know the code, right? Uh, that that because that's so complex, it's hard to ascribe an intention to any one human being, whether it's the manufacturer of the device, the consumer, or anybody else around the vehicle who interacted with the code and yeah and and intention with respect to the particular event in question but of course there's no problem at all ascribing an intention with respect to generally speaking the person who made it intended it to be used and intended it to operate in particular ways right so you step it you use that general intention to take the place of the specific intention and you say look when you when you put it out there in commerce for people to use in the ways we all expect they will including ways that harm other folks you're on it's your dime right because you're the one who designed it so if you don't want to pay those things don't design With it maybe that way. some of the typical escape hatches you know if you use a can of paint and you throw it at somebody well right <laughs> right yeah i mean the the fact but, that the can of paint injured someone but if you but my point is yeah. there, there's a sense in which the intention isn't isn't at all hard to figure out right it's 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 it, it might be hard, very hard to understand with respect to the micro particulars of a given incident Right. Well, it, I didn't know you right. were going to be I didn't know you were going to have the soda bottle in your hand on your back porch that day. Right. Right. Um, but, but, but I did know you were going to hold the bottle because I sold it to be held. And the glass I used in the way that I created the soda bottle burst under the pressure. Yeah, so I, I'm liable. I just think it, it, it highlights the, the, the wisdom of moving to like a more Calabrese style analysis of broad scale incentives and away from right. evaluating the fine details of the moral justice of any particular accident. Yep. Right. Because what we want are fewer <laughs> accidents. Right. And we know exactly. they're going to happen. Right. And so we want to kind of put the liability where we have the best chance of uh, of of most cheaply avoiding these future accidents. Now how right? is this being done with surely we're 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 sort of having to work something like this out with respect to driverless cars, right? I mean, and that technology is sort of almost upon us, is it not? I mean, that's a that's a very good area too where I think that I I saw some article recently that talked about how the people behind even the autonomous cars wanted to ensure that the driver was watching the driver had some level, or the, the driver, I should say the person who is in a position next to the steering wheel or behind the steering wheel that could conceivably take over. Um, but yeah, I mean, so if, if that software is autonomous, then yes, then you get all of the, um, the extensive legal work that's been done by people like Ryan, and there's a guy at South Carolina, I forget his name presently, but he has definitely done a lot of work on you know, what should be the, the state legislation in these areas. Um, and I, I, 
I guess the other thing, too, that I just want to emphasize is, you know, I don't want to just come across as being somebody that's anti-tech or suspicious of it. I mean, I, I could see a future where that becomes the default. You know, if that becomes like, if, if it's clearly much safer uh, to have auton- the autonomous car driving or the, the self-driving car, that, you know, probably does need to become the default at some point. Um, and so I, but I also think there should always be some way for there's manual override for whatever reason, you know. Um, and I think that's that's an important add-on to that. Yeah, and um, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, you know, at some point you you may worry that a manual override will be used. There was a story I don't I forget which podcast it was. I think it was a podcast, but I've also read about it. you know the air disaster off the coast of was it off the coast of Brazil the Air France flight that went down. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the the I think it was the pitot tube was iced over, and they so the instruments were reading wrong. Didn't ninety nine percent invisible did an episode? It about was ninety nine percent invisible. Yeah. yeah, which you did the most recent thing on. It was it was quite, and it was when they turned off the autopilot that things really went into the toilet because right. they didn't realize what to do anymore or how it was going to respond to their inputs. But it was a very simple problem to resolve right basically right. the plane was stalling all they had to do is to point the nose down a little bit build up airspeed and they would have right. been fine but they were you know it was the minute that the manual override kicked in right that they, and they got so flummoxed by everything that was happening that they never actually made the fix right to, to, and they crashed and died and that's very sad so it's possible to, <laughs> to think i mean it certainly is possible to think of autonomous systems that you want to remain autonomous and immune from manual override because the few times that the manual override is used to promote safety will be swamped by the number of times that it is mistakenly turned on and and the situation becomes worse. Right. Uh, and that's kind of scary. I mean, people have talked with driverless cars about the fact that we're going to go through this tricky period where some family is driven over the cliff on a, on a sedan and, and that's going to cause, you know, you know, a, a crap storm, so to speak. And even though there are 20,000 fewer road deaths, um, that occur because of the driverless car, right? And the manual override might actually have made things worse. I, I don't. I mean, hmm. I, Frank, do you, I mean, do you to back up a little bit? Do you agree with, um, with with what I said earlier about like how maybe a system of analysis of incentives should replace a system of analyzing intentions? And and would that provide some answers here? Well, I do want to come back to your point about the the manual override because okay. I think that's a you know I think that's a really critical issue that is involves a distinction between a social order you know essentially de- devised to optimize some uh, utility versus one that sort of recognizes some even if even residual autonomy in various areas of life. And I mean, I would come back even to something that's, I mean, even a more chilling example, but one that I think is really quite illustrative of intuitions here, which is, imagine you had a world in which, you know, you had autonomous drones, and it turned out that, you know, the Defense Department or CIA, I guess, is running the drone program, was able to prove to the disposition matrix in the White House that essentially running autonomous drones killed far fewer civilians and killed far more terrorists than, you know, a situation where we knew what the drones were doing or we somehow were, or or humans were piloting the drones and and actually carrying out the kills. Now, I think there's a lot of people who would say that that there would be a moral imperative to go to that system. But I also, I, I worry about such a system because I just sort of feel like, you know, having a world, there are certain types of areas where, 
direct human responsibility is really important. And I, I worry about um, just outsourcing that to algorithmic process, algorithmic processes that we may not understand or may not be able to reverse engineer. And so therefore, you know, I sort of feel like the same with the, with the manual override of the car, or not the same, but, you know, to draw some, using that earlier example as an intuition pump, um, you know, I, I think that there, even if we have a sense that, you know, it's all going to go pear-shaped when people <laughs> opt out of the, of the autonomous system, nevertheless, that residue of, of human freedom just seems important on, uh, as a, as a recognition of individual autonomy and responsibility. Now, see, see here, I'm going to agree and disagree with you. I, I, I agree on the drone example, and, and I think I disagree on the car example. And, and in other words, whether I think there should be a manual override for driverless cars in the imagined future where they dramatically reduce automobile deaths depends on, for me, an analysis of whether allowing manual override uh, causes more harm or, or uh, reduces harm. And but I hear you saying the interesting thing about the um, about the military drone example is that I, what I see and I hear you saying about it is there's there there is a there's an ongoing moral decision made to deploy those things in a particular way, and by f- automating it fully, we kind of remove ourselves not just from the decision to to uh, use them or not, but also from the consequences because those consequences are ongoing without our input, and there's something very human about. Uh, that, that may change the, your kind of moral thinking if you are directly connected, you know, by the hand to the consequences of your action. And so there's kind of a, it's not tertiary, I don't know if it's secondary or what, but, but to, um, to remove the manual input from the drone strike where civilians are being killed has these kind of, you know, dramatic consequences for our moral thinking about that issue. But I don't see that in the driverless car example where, for me, it's just, you know, what's the safest in the aggregate? I want to put some more cultural stuff on the table, which is a few points. First of all, I think we come back to this issue again and again and again. And and from from cultural achievements as massive as uh, the Matthew Broderick vehicle war games and the Whopper computer. Turn your key. Um, <laughs> exactly. And the, the need for... Um, for uh, some human layer of decision making in, in that context, to um, well, I, I, it just seems like we gra- the 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 open letter recently from Elon Musk and others with respect to weaponizing AI. Um, we 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 confront this question constantly, right? I'm sure we could go back and find commentary in between one war and the next war where the difference was. In the prior war, you had to get within a few feet of the guy and jam the bayonet in his face, right? right? right. Whereas now you can be a football field or more away and there's something, you know, uh, unvalorous, un, un, uh, inhuman. And now you can be in um, Cheyenne Mountain. And, right. And it's the yeah. same. So, we, so that's one iteration of the or one way to express the, I think, the same kind of moral quandary uh, in a way. And, I, and so it's interesting that we... This is something we keep having to confront about ourselves and about the tools that we create to to achieve the objectives we want to achieve, both for good and for bad. Uh, and I just think that's a that's this is an evergreen problem. It's not a big deal, but I just think it's important to say. Absolutely, and I mean, I think that there's, um, you know, and I, I think that the other point I made towards the end of the post that I I think relates to the development of of both legal rules and moral norms here is that 
you know, we have to also be ready to say, wow, this situation is completely different, you know? And I, I, I worry, like I've, I've read literature on drones that says, well, if you think that the drone is bad because it reduces the risk of soldiers who are going to war and that's going to lead to more wars because they're less costly, I guess you're also against uh, bulletproof vests. And it's like, no, you know, I, you don't have to, you know, you, you know, that type of, I mean, I, I really, this is by very serious people. I will not, you know, shame them by naming them, but I mean, very serious people who have very high policy impact have made exactly that argument. And it's in um, Gregoire Chamus' book, uh, Theory of the Drone, his response to them. But, you know, I mean, they've said that, and I, and I just sort of feel like, well, you know, it's, it's one where there's really very subtle differences. And, you know, and I think that this step between, like, you know, from being the bomber pilot who's actually flying over the what you're bombing to being the person at the Creech Air Force Base who's manipulating it via remote control to being the programmer who's like, you know, a modern-day Ender's Game type of, you know, a programmer who's just, you know, trying to put, put in, uh, imagine all the potential um, algorithmic variations of attack and defense and, you know, all those things. Those are all very different scenarios. And as war or any type of human activity enters into these more and more mediated and automatized versions of themselves, I think we just have to be able to say, wow, that we've got to really modernize the law to keep up with that and not just analogize from from the past. You know, that makes me think of the fact that um, in so many areas we've relied, I mean, what I hear them saying about the bulletproof vest thing, right, is that there's this systematic problem with people generally that we value ourselves more than others. And, and war is one of the, can be one of the ultimate expressions of that. And, and one of the handbrakes on this human tendency to dehumanize and devalue others is the risk to oneself that one uh, engages in when trying to destroy or demean or do something bad to somebody else. Right. And, and so one of the handbrakes on war is that you'll risk your own soldiers, you'll risk your own treasure in, in doing it. Right. And by removing that, we have this problem where, you know, what we'd like to get to is, a, is, a, is, is a world in which people don't devalue others. Right. So the, the reason not to go to war with another country, even though it could be costless in some sense to, to your own country is that those that country has people in it too, right? right. Who are just as right. valuable as right. ours, right? Yeah. But but that's and also you recognize true. that as a great wrong, right. quite apart from right. any other thing you might suffer. Exactly, yeah. but but it's also true of the example we started with, of the you know the guy going up on the ladder, a very high ladder to take pictures of the neighbor, right? You that, that one of the breaks on, on on unwanted voyeurism and doing these crazy things, right? Is that you'll be discovered, you'll be high up on a ladder, and that's kind of dangerous. I mean, a lot of these things which are. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, which are really prying and that people don't normally do. One of the reasons people don't normally do them, right, um, because we know from the Internet that that um, uh, 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 that, you know, um, if you give people the means, they'll do it. Right. But so one of the reasons people don't normally do these kinds of things is that there's some risk to them of exposure, you know, whether it's psychic injury or, or, or physical injury. When that risk goes away, we have kind of a problem. Yeah, that's where the law comes in, right, where people aren't going to moderate their the, the, right. the technology gives well, them the power. We may or may not. I mean, we have to, I think it, there's reason to question whether we actually observe the problem. Right. Uh, we might observe it. We might not observe it. We might not have a full understanding of all the incentives that are right. in play. But before we go with Frank, I just want to know, like, Frank, what do you, how would you respond to the fact that that's not a problem with driverless cars? Or do you think it is? Do you, you know what I mean? I mean, so that. that oh, sure, yeah. sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, <laughs> well, I, I'm so glad you brought it up again because. 
the issue here is, um, let me bring up my counter scenarios for why I, I want to maintain manual overrides, which is, okay. um, I recently published, co-authored a piece in First Monday on call, about this called The Spectrum of Control, uh, A Social Theory of the Smart City, um, which is all about these t- types of scenarios where there can be remote control added to cars, computers, the smart home, um, smart parking meters, what have you. And, and can I just um, say, Frank, that you, you come up with the best names for stuff. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, your titles are awesome. <laughs> Black Box thanks. Society, and this, this is another example. But anyway, sorry to interrupt you. No problem. No, I, I hope that, that listeners will take a look at it because I think it's a really interesting. And but it is it is long and it has lots of you know theory stuff in it. But I mean, I think the lesson of it can can be drawn from a piece we wrote for Al Jazeera that is about remote shutoff of cars by subprime lenders. Mm. So what the subprime lenders said is, hey, we've got a whole new, a much better situation for everybody. We can knock a few percentage points off your interest rate. Just allow us to put this little device in your car so that if you are late on a payment. We shut down your car, and then we can easily repossess it. And you know, it's, it's sort of it's monitored by the lender and can easily be uh, sent out a signal to the repo man. And you know, in the the main controversy over this was that one person said that her car was shut down while she was on a Nevada highway. You know, which obviously is crazy. I mean, right? That and I mean, I mean, I'm saying obviously, if I don't know if it happened or if it didn't happen, but to the extent that would be enabled by technology, that is crazy. And that's where I would say want a federal level of regulator to stop that. But the larger lesson is, I think, that, you know, I am freaked out by a world in which these types of remote control, software-enabled, Internet of Things-enabled devices are controlling everything uh, in our daily lives, particularly if there's no oversight over them or if it's just a matter of contract between the consumer and a big corporation or, or government, too. And so I sort of feel like that, uh, or branches of government. And so therefore, you know, that's why I... I it's it's things like that. It's things like the prospect of these remote shutdowns by lenders, or um, you know, the the key that suddenly doesn't open your house when you're behind on your rent, or something like that. All of those are scenarios where I think that the the social consequences of automation, we really have to get to grips with um, uh, them as really knocking down people's freedom, even if. They enable, say, ninety percent of the car drivers are happy because they are paying less interest on their loan and they're paying every, paying everything on time. It may well be utilitarianly far better that world, but still, I, I worry about this sort of these excluded folks um, or expelled folks uh, who are on the margins of these uh, social control systems. Yeah, but is that is that because you disagree with that utilitarian calculus at bottom? You, you know that the, the the woman driving on the highways health and safety is actually worth more than even if you added up all the aggregate savings and it came to $10 million and that's more than the $6 million that admin law normally values a life at, uh, or thereabouts, uh, you know, that, that there's something you have a problem with that analysis, or is it truly that there's something about human control, which is either a huge thumb on the scale of the utilitarian calculus or should take it outside of that altogether. And, and as an example is if you knew for, for sure that airplanes, which uh, were not flied by human, not not flown by humans, and 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 not taken. You can't take control back. You knew that they crashed like once every ten years, but they crashed at a much lower rate than 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 human piloted crafts. Would you have a problem with that? Do you see what do you see what I'm getting at? I mean, is, oh is yeah, it, no, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. No, I, I definitely see that. You know, that it is. Um, 
And these are going to be judgment calls about the degree to which you're going to endorse the automation of social order and the introduction of even autonomous uh, machines to regulate human conduct. Um, but I do think that, you know, it is, it's, you know, you have to ask a question like, for example, I mean, there, there are just so many scenarios. Like, for example, you know, I'm sure that the Black Lives Matter protesters in New York who you know, stopped people from going in and out of the Holland Tunnel for a few hours, that, you know, the people, there are many people who were in that traffic jam that probably would have wished to have, you know, had robotic uh, drones come in and swoop the protesters away or something like that, you know, yeah. and, and that I think is, and, you know, and, and I think that that is, uh, and it may well have been the utilitarianly um, optimal solution, but when you add in values of, say, autonomy and dissent and democratic uh, governance or, you know, allowing, uh, allowing for some room for civil disobedience and protest in uh, the context of democracies. There's also arguments to say that the, that have enabling um, looser social orders, social orders that have more um, openness uh, and less uh, control enable us to find different sets of values to affirm older sets of values than our, I think commonly part of the technocratic cost benefit analysis. But by the way, I'm not saying that like let everybody override the the uh, the manual control all the time. I mean maybe it would even be a situation where you get later permission or something. But mm -hmm. I do think it is interesting, do you know? I and I bet if you had somebody on the show who was more of a techno libertarian, like someone who is, you know, really into encryption and other things like that, they would push back really hard against your characterization, um, you know. But I, I'm trying. I'm more of a <laughs> middle roader, you know. But I, but I do think that you know there, there are definitely examples, you know, cut ranging from the subprime remote shutdown to the protest example, where there's going to be problems with um, values problems that are going to be raised by these um, uh, mechanized smart cities, smart home type of uh, projects. The the contrast. Uh, I mean, I think you're both making great points. What they sound like to me is the difference between two frames, both of which, or each of which is on its own, uh, extremely uh, fruitful. Uh, one is the Christian's frame is a whether, uh, whether there should be human control frame. And Frank's frame sounds more like there will always be a human con in control. What matters is which human is in control, right? So he's, he adverts to the, the, the lender, if they use an algorithm to ultimately shut down your car, there is a human in control. It's someone who's sitting in a bank, right? Um, so, so these two different frames, whether there'll be a human in control and, and asking, well, which one is in control? Even if it looks like one isn't, is there one? Is there a programmer at some previous step or something? Both of these sound like really important things to think about and ask about and, and come up with some facts about. That is such a great point. And I, I want to bring up as well the work of uh, Dale Carrico and his responses to the band killer robots folks, because I, I'm very into the band killer robots movement. I think it's an important one. But what Carrico says, and he's a big critic of futurology in general, is that you know rob there's always someone who controls the robots. And a lot of times our debates over the powers and privileges of robots are a smokescreen or a distraction from the more important, interesting debate. 
you know, and, and it is a very, I think, a very critical perspective to take into account. Well, one thing the law can do, I've got so many thoughts, we're not going to get through them all. We're going to have to have Frank back on 20 more times. At least. I, yeah. <laughs> yes. You are, you are now. And a, we will automate it. He, he will simply be, he will simply, he will be, simply be forced to Yeah, appear. you're just a co-host now. Yeah, uh, that, uh, w- one thing that the law can do, though, is to, um, is to pronounce uh, control. I mean, not control, but but can pronounce responsibility, mm. right? By making somebody liable, right? Right, and because I can imagine systems, and and Frankie, I know you've written about this, where there are, um, uh, there are thousands of people who are programming different parts of some system, right? And that system amalgamates into something which has some effect, right? And and that effect, it's hard to trace back. You know, all of them, all, all of those individuals or all of those companies is a but, each of them is a but for causation of what happened, right? And this is a standard kind of torts problem too, mm-hmm. in a way. But um, uh, but the law can kind of sort that out and, and can encourage somebody to take responsibility uh, for the system. It, it doesn't just have to recognize responsibility. It can create it, right? Well, yes. and, and one might say it never just recognizes it. I mean, these are all choices that have been made for yes. various reasons at various times. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Frank, what? No, absolutely. What, what else should we, um, what, you know, I, I just, I don't want to hit stop. I don't want you to go. So, uh, <laughs> but, but I feel like we've <laughs> well, taken thanks. up too much of your time already. But um, uh, was it, what do we miss? Is there something in this conversation about, uh, about drones that we really should not go unsaid? Well, I think that the, one of the things that we didn't cover, and maybe we could cover in a future show, I'd love to, or I would highly recommend if you can get Mary Joseph O'Connell, O'Connell on from Notre Dame to talk about um, what it means for a country's military to try to uh, amass a insuperable, unthreatenable um, air superiority with drones. Because I think that's a really interesting ethical question that, you know, uh, the, the Shamayu book uh, talks a lot about. Um, I mean, Medea Benjamin has this book called Killing by Remote Control. The Shamayo book has this really interesting reflection on um, what it means to try to basically move from like a two-dimensional uh, monitoring of the ground to a sort of three-dimensional uh, maintenance of control over what, what's called in military parlance the kill box. You know, <laughs> kill boxes everywhere where, where any, any entity who do, you don't want in a place can be just sort of uh, summarily gotten rid of. And I think that that is something that, you know, military strategists think a bit about, but, and so much of the literature is ostensibly based on international human rights law or other international law, human rights law, other forms of law. But really, when you push hard, like I think what O'Connell does, a lot of the efforts to normalize and justify movements towards, say, a drone-centered uh, military or autonomous uh, weapon-centered military they really, it's, it starts becoming something that appears radically new and radically troubling um, is, is to that, those who worry about these things. Is that because it moves closer? I've been, I've been interested in kind of information regulation as a topic more generally and, and including in um, jurisprudence. But, but as a kind of practical matter, I've always been drawn to this kind of existential problem of, you know, what would happen if there were a red button that destroyed the world, that could destroy the world, right? And, and how would we solve that problem by hiding it, by trying to restrict access, you know, obviously ex post regulation wouldn't work. Is part of the issue here that, uh, is, is, is part of the issue here that, um, uh, that, that war by drone and war by ever more powerful drones moves us close. Like we've relied, I think as we talked about earlier, we've relied on this kind of symmetry of power 
you know, if there's a symmetry of power, no one can destroy true, uh, completely the other, right? And, and um, uh, but but if there is a red button um, and, and that destroys the world and and drones give everybody access to that button, then the old models don't work. We've partly answered this question, I think, by the you know the every killing everyone in the world type of question. That's probably been answered by the mutually assured destruction. Well, by, no, I think by the explosion of homeland security and yeah. you know the huge growth in that sector, uh, be it you know explicit or um, black budget military intelligence apps. I mean, there's a paper by Bowles, I think, uh, in Arjadev that says that guard labor is now 20% of the GDP. So, mm-hmm. you know, you count in all the efforts to just sort of keep order. And, you know, you could imagine that percentage. Of, and it's amazing to me how many think tanks in Washington are terrified about healthcare going above 20% of GDP <laughs> and how few talk about, you know, the sort of explosion of, of expenses on defensive offensive capabilities um, isn't that what you'd expect if so if we're getting closer to the red button wouldn't you expect that the uh that the um spending on guarding would would there'd be a vertical asymptote right that we're approaching i mean at some point like no matter how much more you spend everybody has access to that button right yes yes i mean i think that's well no i i mean i would say that the i mean i am less concerned though about that button um, and about the sort of spread of, I mean, I guess I'm concerned about that more in my, my wearing my hat as a surveillance studies person. Mm-hmm. I'm the drone thing, at least the way that I framed it is that I just, and the way that O'Connell frames it is I'm more afraid of just the ability of, you know, costless destruction by one entity against another. That's what I really am afraid of. And I just sort of feel like that's, um, and I think that it's, it's paradoxical because I think that the the more we try to develop this technology, or any country tries to develop this technology of you know completely subduing other populations or making itself entirely safe, the more it ends up um, creating a base of technological abilities that are exactly what you talk about this this ability for anybody to just to wreak havoc. Um, wow. And so I think that sort yeah. of is a is a bigger is a big problem to me. But yeah, but I do think that that's a that's and and I I just just a, it's a it's a cause of a lot of worry, but it's something that I don't think is really thought that much by legal scholars uh, outside of the community of folks that are already pretty comfortable with the direction things are going. Well, the book should be called <laughs> the the book should be called the danger of safety. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm. <laughs> there are a lot of great titles kicking around. So uh, Frank, very early in the episode, mentioned the title of a great future paper by him or by some other person um, called No Drones in the Park um, uh, <laughs> yes. to, to update the, the Hart Fuller debate in some respect. I think other. I already mentioned on Ryan on the Ryan Kahlo episode, the the series of drone puns that that I'd posted, I think, on Facebook a while back when it was apparent that there were in about four years. Hence, there would be a bunch of law review articles about drones, okay. like to each his drone. Bad to the drone. Uh, well, I was going <laughs> to to the drone. My, <laughs> That's better than to each his drone. I think I mentioned my favorite was was a special that would be that could only be published in Idaho, and that's my drone, Private Idaho. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. The, what needs to happen next is that on the great Comedy Central show at midnight, uh, host Chris Hardwick, the second uh, bit in every episode is hashtag wars, mm. and so we need to we need to send this into them as an appropriate candidate for hashtag hashtag wars so that people can come up with drone related puns i think the world needs that 
I totally. I I'm I'm concerned that that would make the world less safe. <laughs> <laughs> certainly more painful certainly more painful listen thank you so much frank uh for coming on for I, the first of many episodes yeah this could have gone on for like two hours but um i, I feel like we'd be stealing your time from you so uh uh until next time uh, thanks a bunch terrific thank you it's been a pleasure to be on